is it possible for us to feel confident, connected, and comfortable inside a real relationship, whether that be with your spouse, with your significant other, your children, your co-workers, your family members? And if it were, what would we have to do? And really, is it even worth it? Um, I believe that relationships require work, real work, hard work. And in order for us to have close relationships, we're going to have to work on achieving that. Uh, for those of you who are visiting us for the first time or watching us online, uh, my name is Ephraim Peña. I'm the campus pastor here, and I truly hope you enjoy your time with us this morning. We are in week two or part two of the first teaching series of 2023, uh, and it is not by mistake uh, that we have chosen to teach on relationships and not just uh, your significant other relationships. We're talking about the deep relationships, the relationships that are meaningful in your life because those are the relationships that will, will help you carry uh, along with you in this new year. The relationships that you have are the ones that are going to be there for you, support you, and encourage you, uh, and vice versa. And so last week, we introduced the attachment theory, the study of how we get and keep uh, connection with others. And there are four attachment styles or set of assumptions that we've acquired about um, how relationships work. And I handed out some homework uh, for you in the form of some questionnaire, a questionnaire for you to determine which style uh, you're leaning towards. And some of you were like, oh my God, I forgot. Well, I don't want you to forget because it's super important, right? Um, it's super important that you take this test and you kind of find out which style you're leaning to because if understanding where you are and, and what style uh, you're currently in will help you kind of move and direct where you need to be or want to be. So if you do not have it, you lost it, you use it as a coaster, you made a paper plane and flew it out, we have some at the connection booth that you can get. But I want to encourage you, please, Take this uh, question here with you, right? And so we've been talking about this diagram, right? Not a diagram, but we've been talking about the, uh, the, the four attachment styles. And I'm going to put up a diagram up there for you, for you to see, right? The four kind of styles that, that we talked about. There is the secure one. And then there is the sensitive one. And we're going to be talking about that. It's on slide number three. Uh, Mike, if you could put that up there. Um, and today, so we, we're talking about, that. we talked about secure a little bit, the sensitive, the shifty or scattered, or the shutdown. And, and uh, you'll see there on the outside of that, on the outskirts of that, it will kind of determine where we are on that uh, scale. And so today's message is titled Sensitive to Confident. We're going to focus on that particular style, the sensitive style. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering, man, I didn't do this questionnaire, so I really don't know which way I'm leaning towards. Uh, I'm going to speak into that this morning, and hopefully maybe you might uh, kind of, uh, by just due diligence and kind of hearing what you're uh, paying attention to what I'm saying, you're going to kind of say, oh, maybe, maybe that's me. But let me, let me share with you what it feels like to have a sensitive style. And it's 
something like this, right? Let's say uh, you get invited to a get-together on a group chat, right? A group chat on your phone. And uh, a couple of people say, I'm in, I'm in. And you do as well. The person who sent the invite replies to two specific people on that thread that, um, that are not you, that are not you, uh, and that, that he's excited, he or she's excited to hang with them, but that doesn't individually reply to you. And so you start to panic. Wait, am I, am I even supposed to be on this chat? Like, was, was I even invited, uh, really invited, right? You don't know what to make of things uh, because they're kind of weird. Uh, it feels weird by out, outright asking. So you decide to just chime in uh, a couple of more times. So they'll realize that you're in, right? And so you reply that you'll bring the chips. Cricket, cricket. Nobody replies, and so you're not sure if they're just ignoring you or not getting your texts, right, or just don't want chips. Um, and so you decide to send another text, a text, a te- another text asking what kind of chips they want. But still, nobody replies. Now they're definitely ignoring you. And so you try to, to make a joke. Uh, Doritos are a go-to, uh, but Ruffles have ridges, LOL, right? Which isn't a really good joke at all. But but did get someone to reply, right? You did get someone to reply. It wasn't the original sender, so you still don't know if you've been actually invited on purpose or not. This person replies, sounds good, whatever, right? But does that mean it really does sound good or, or, or that you're just annoyed, you're just a, annoying someone and they want you to stop texting. And so you think to yourself, I'll, I'll double check with another text. And, and so, sorry for all the texts, guys. Uh, I'm not trying to be annoying. And someone else replies back, it's fine. See you tonight. But it doesn't feel fine. It feels like everyone's now mad at you and it's probably because you're not even supposed to be going to this party anyway, and you still have no idea how many bags of chips you should be bringing. And so you text again, and no one replies. You feel sick, sick to your stomach, right? And all day, and you're like, oh my gosh, what, what's going to happen? What should I do? And so you buy 17 bags of chips from two different stores. You show up early, but nervously wait in your car. You finally go in with half the bag of chips because going in with 17 bags of chips would look, make you really look crazy, right? And so you're still not feeling good about it. They're not mad, but they weren't even paying attention to you, probably because they didn't even mean to invite you to begin with. And so having a sensitive attachment feels like that. People who adopt this style tend to grow up, excuse me, it's like that, except in response to everything all the time. When you're around someone who has a highly sensitive attachment style, it can feel exhausting, and it is. And you know who is the most exhausted from this? The person 
who's constantly, uncontrollably running these scenarios in their head. People who adopt this style tend to grow up experiencing their parents as inconsistent. So they're not always sure what to expect. So the thought is, if I can minimize the unknowns by anticipating other people's thoughts and feelings ahead of time, I can stop the chaos before it even starts. Last week, we defined sensitive attachment, right, as the belief that closeness or the result uh, of being close to someone will come from having the right behavior, requiring you to vigilantly uh, monitor other people's moods to, uh, for potential risks that you, res- you are responsible to prevent or repair. And right about now, if you kind of relate to that, you're, you're kind of understanding this. Like, oh my gosh, I think I fit into this. Set of this, this attachment style. I'm going to break this down and clarify this a little bit more. This means that those with this attachment style of sensitive regularly obsess over what others are thinking. They struggle to feel confident in a relationship when they're away from the other person. They feel like they can't say no or disagree or have different preferences or opinions. They look for hidden meanings behind how others do everything. They constantly check in to make sure that everything is okay. Fear is that a fear that if they screw this up, they'll never get another chance. They call, text, and email several times in a row, even when there's no reply. They hang out somewhere the other person might be in hopes that they would run into them. They make extreme statements to stir up an emotional response, and they raise their voice or exaggerate their expressions to force engagement. Maybe you or someone you know are anxious and the assumption that pops in your head is, man, they must have had horrible parents. They must have horrible parents. But the truth is that's, that's not necessarily true. And even if it is, it's really not the whole story. Research actually shows us that Um, our adult attachment styles are the result of three things, biology, upbringing, and previous adult relationships. So it could be any one of those three or any mixture of those three. These three things combine to produce a set of default tendencies to get and keep connection. And when you look at the list of sensitive attachment tendencies, a lot of them a lot of them feel like drawbacks, right? A lot of them kind of feel like, oh my gosh, I got an issue, I got a problem, right? And some are, but it also gives people access to what, um, to what feels like superpowers to the rest of us. Things like mapping other people's patterns, reading the moods and anticipating the needs of others, empathizing with how others feel, troubleshooting potential situational conflict and being prepared for multiple possibilities. Those sound pretty good to me. Let me give you an example from Scripture here. 
There's a story in the Old Testament where this family moves to a foreign country. Right? And the boys grow up and they marry girls from that country. And then the mom's husband passes away and so does her two sons. They pass and now it's just her, the mom, and the two daughter-in-laws. So she decides to go back to where she's from, from her country. And the girls are like, okay, we'll go with you. We'll go with you. Which starts a back and forth exchange that many of you have probably read before in the book of Ruth. And we're going to read from Ruth chapter 1 and verse 11. It says, uh, Naomi starts, but Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Verse 14, and again they wept together, and Oprah and kissed, Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Now, this part of the story is usually uh, used in passages and preachings as inspirational and beautiful. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. If you go here, I'm going to go there, right? And in some ways it is. But there are other ways to read this through the lens of attachment. It looks like two anxious people scrambling to do whatever they have to to keep the other person close. Naomi is threatening to leave but really wants to stay. She makes extreme statements to get a reaction from the people she's talking to. In some ways, it seems like she's testing them to see if they really love her enough to come after her. Very sensitive actions, if you ask me. And Ruth, <laughs> Ruth can't stand the idea of being away from Naomi. She may not want to leave her Behind, leave her life behind, but can't seem to say no. If she screws this up, she's nervous, she's nervous, she'll never get another chance. And she's so preoccupied with the tension in the relationship that she can't focus on anything else. And she too makes exaggerated emotional statements to force action. Imagine. Imagine if someone said that to you, right? You're about to split. You go this way, you go that way, and someone says to you, uh-uh, I'm going to go wherever you go. I'm going to do whatever you do. It's a bit much, right? 
You're going to abandon your home, your friends, your community, your values, your faith to keep this relationship afloat? Some of you may be thinking, wait, what's wrong with that? That kind of sounds romantic to me. They giving up everything to be around me. And the reason we think like that is because we have seen so many rom-coms and heard so many love songs that romanticize anxiety. Name your favorite rom-com and chances are there's a character in there that's clingy and full of anxiousness. For Ruth, her whole life, her whole life is defined based on her relationship with this one person. And she, could, she can only feel okay if, if Naomi is okay. And if Naomi's not okay, she's, it, it's probably her fault. And she's responsible to scramble and fix it, even if that means that her wants, her needs, her goals, and her dreams go out the window. Because her attachment style is sensitive, and she's going to try to fix it. Because the thinking of those who have a sensitive attachment style is, it's up to me to keep this relationship working. And that's what produces all the behaviors that we just talked about a bit ago. Church, we become clingy when we worry that saying or doing one wrong thing will ruin everything. When we are so consumed with the fact that if we keep, if we do this one thing, if we just mess up once, it's going to end the relationship. And the irony is by always being anxious that you're going to ruin everything ends up being the reason, the thing that ruins everything. You understand what I'm saying? The people around us become worn down and worn out by our constant overanalyzing, our second-guessing, our questioning, our hovering, our monitoring, our moodiness, our assuming the worst. And the closer we cling, the harder they'll try to, to get away. If we don't learn how to address our insecurity, church, we end up exhausting ourselves and everyone around us. But this, this is even bigger than our human relationships. That's part A, right? We said that the, 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 the understanding is that where you are, what attachment style, how you handle your personal relationships will directly reflect on how you handle your relationship with God. Again, how we attach to others is how we attach to God. And some of us would summarize our relationship with God is exhausting. Exhausting. We just don't admit it. But it's exhausting, right? We see God's love for us as conditional, excuse me, based on the stuff that we say, based on the stuff that we do. So we're always, we're constantly wondering, are God and I okay? Are we good? Are you still loving me? 
Am I doing enough? Is he mad at me? Have I disappointed him? Why don't I feel close to him? Maybe, maybe if I do more of the right things and believe more of the right things and keep all of the right rituals and avoid all of the wrong sins, then I can, I can, I can win God back. Jesus is, uh, Jesus, Jesus must have misspoke when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is like, ah, uh-uh, it's not. It's not. Because maintaining a relationship is very burdensome, especially with God. And some of the religious environments that we've been in and experiences we've had only strengthen that, 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 that suspicion that we have. That why would God love me? Why would he want a relationship with me if, if I'm constantly doing the wrong thing? Preachers used uh, the, the, the line, close to God. Close to God, right? We need to stay close to God as a, as a polite substitute for doing what's right and avoiding what's wrong. And we were told to stay close to God during the week. And if someone did something sinful, everyone would say, well, they're far from God. They haven't been going to church. They haven't been listening to the message. They haven't been applying it, right? They must be running from God. They're backsliding. The message we got was that God isn't present when you're at your worst, that you better figure out how to pull yourself together, get yourself up out of the gutter because God's not going to help you. It's up to you to maintain that relationship. God likes you when only likes you when, when you're good and abandons you when you're bad. So what do you do? You go to every Bible study. You only listen to worship music. You're in three accountability groups. You subscribe to seven different preaching podcasts. You don't drink or smoke. You don't go to bars. You don't dance. You don't wear tank tops. You don't even watch R-rated movies or let your kids say stupid. And it still feels like it's not enough. And whether or not you do that church, whether or not you do these things, it's not the point. The question is, why? Why? Why are you doing them? You see, the lines blur in a sea of anxiety, and we stop knowing if what's driving our spiritual uh, disciplines is, is God's love for us or our fear of God not loving us. You follow? Some of the most disciplined amongst us still go to bed every night with the fear of waking up tomorrow in hell. They can't shake the sense that God is a perfectionist father demanding that his kids don't mess up or let him down or that they're out or, or if they do, they're out of the family. But church, what we see in Scripture so contradicts that what we read in the word of god is so not like that 
It's a different, it's, it, it speaks of a different kind of a father. In Matthew 3, chapter 17, a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. And he's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus at this point had not done anything, right? He had not done anything whatsoever. This is, he speaks these words before any healing, any miracles, or any teachings that Jesus had begun to share. This is, this is at the very beginning. He's getting baptized by John the Baptist. And once he comes out of the water, Jesus speaks, oh God speaks these words upon Jesus. God's closeness with and joy over his son has nothing Nothing to do with his behavior or his achievements. I want you to hold on to that this, this, at this moment. Because as I'm going to read this, I want you to hear what God is saying. And the Apostle Paul tells us in the same, it's the same with all of us. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. I'll repeat that because because some of us need to hear it in the back. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Church, our closeness with God is about what he does, not about what we do. Our closeness with God is about what he does, not about what we do or do not do. What does that closeness look like? Matthew 11 tells us that Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus was always eating, drinking, laughing, swapping stories with people who did all kinds of things that he didn't think was a good idea, that didn't line up with his teachings, didn't line up with what his father wanted us to learn, right? He never once told them, if you want to get close to me, listen, listen, Linda, listen. Right? You need to go and stop doing all of that crazy stuff first and then get right. Get your life right, life right first and then come to me. No, that's not what he said. He didn't say get your life right and then come hang with me. He said, oh, I'm going to hang with you until you get your life going. Because I love you that much. Right? But obviously there are limits to that, Pastor. There are limits to that love, right? No, Psalms 139, 7 to 12 says, God is with us no matter what. No matter what. Listen closely here, church. Nothing can stop God from coming close, including and especially not sin. So if you're sitting in your chair, be like, man, God, God doesn't want to hear my prayers because, you know, I'm living in sin right now. Or I don't have my, right, my life together. He, he, won't, he won't hear. They, they don't even want me at church because I don't even know the worship songs. It feels like karaoke. I'm looking at the screen. I don't know when to clap. I don't even, know how to, I don't even have a voice. I can't keep it in tune. I don't even know how to pray. Like, what's up, Jesus? Like, that's all I say. And God is like, has nothing to do with that. In my word, I said, I loved you first. Before you even came into existence, I loved you. In fact, I created you. 
Yeah, you might have steered left and right, and that's not what I wanted from you. But I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to embrace you. You're not close with me because you left, not me. I'm still here. I'm still present. So let me wrap this up. Listen, God, I want you to really listen to me here this morning. Whether you're online or watching here, maybe this is something for someone you know. God is not scared away by your sin. God is not throwing up in a corner by your sin. In fact, he engages with us when we are in our sin. Can you, can you even comprehend that? That while we are sinning, whatever that sin may be, small, medium, or large, or extra large, in my case, double X. While we are in our sin, God says, I still love you. And I'm going to engage with you in the midst of your yuckiness. You don't got to go clean up right now to feel loved because I'm going to enter in your world and embrace you with love. He offers us genuine friendship even in our darkest hour despite what we've done. For David, David who wrote this psalm, not even adultery or murder managed to push him away from God. Pastor, does that mean that God doesn't care about sin? No. <laughs> he absolutely cares about sin. He wants to address that in your life. But he's not going to get caught up He's not going to get stuck on your sin in order to love you. Perfection is not a prerequisite for connection with God. Oh, I don't, I don't have my life together like the pastor. Newsflash, the pastor doesn't have his life together. He's still struggling with things. Still trying to figure things out. Or I don't read my Bible enough. Or I don't look the part. Or I don't talk the part. Or I don't know the worship songs. Or in my car, I like playing hip-hop in my car. Right? So does the pastor. Right? But, 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 but listen. But, but Linda, listen. I, I don't know if I got my life together. And God is saying, I don't care. What I care is about you. And I want to love on you. And I want this relationship with you. I want to embrace you. I want to walk you through your sin. I want to walk you through and out of your sin. But you got to let me in. You can't get stuck on whether, whether I'm going to love you through your sin or your sin is too big or, or where you are right now is full of junk and, and, and you don't have your stuff together. And God is saying, man, perfection is not a prerequisite for connection. I want to love you. God wants to help us move forward and knows that we cannot do it without his help. All throughout scripture, God corrects people who have gotten off track, but he never threatens to remove his love if they don't get it together. 
of all the seasons, excuse me, of all the reasons to avoid sin in our lives, closeness with God is not one of them. (laughs) Many of you know I have four girls. My oldest is here. My second oldest is in Georgia, and the two are upstairs. And when my girls do wrong, and they have done wrong, and I pretend and I got the, well, they've done wrong. As a father, I tell them not to do that anymore. Not because if they don't, that I'm going to hate them or our relationship is going to wither away. But because I don't want them to hurt themselves. I don't want them to put themselves in a predicament that will kind of compromise their life, their happiness. But even if they choose to ignore my advice and hurt themselves anyway, you could bet all the money in the bank that I'm going to still love them just as much. I still want them to be near. I still want the best for them. They're still my girls. They're still my babies. They still bring me joy. And as a father, I cannot not love them. I could only want what's best for them. You see, secure relationships are based on the felt safety, on the felt safety of knowing that there may be ups and downs church even times of distance but the relationship itself is never in jeopardy the way we keep closeness is not by performing but by expressing our needs and receiving care so stop striving church and start trusting start trusting in your God and your Father And here's what's crazy. Research shows us that bad behavior arises when someone is emotionally overwhelmed. So it's safe to say that that when we have a secure relationship to stand on, we usually, usually make better choices in life. So if you have anxious tendencies, you're here this morning and you have anxious tendencies, if sensitive attachment is your default setting, the path to security is to adopt practices that reinforce true closeness that aren't determined by performance or performances. And the reason we call them practices is because they're actions that we have to you're going to have to repeat put on repeat can't just say it and say okay that's it I'm, I'm good no there have to be actions that you have to constantly put on repeat because we don't change by learning new information right we don't change by learning new information because every Sunday I'm giving you new information you change by stacking up new experiences, by putting things into play. This is why God doesn't just tell us that he loves us no matter what. He comes to earth and he hangs out with people who are doing wrong things day after day, day after day. 
And then instead of expecting them to make up for their wrongdoing, he pays the price. He pays the price on their behalf. The early disciples' view of God was transformed not by new information, but by Jesus inviting them into these new experiences. So here are a few practices that we want to suggest. Memorize or meditate scriptures about God's unconditional love for you. Put a picture that illustrates God is a friend of sinners somewhere. You're regularly going to go see it. Spend time around people who reflect this aspect of God. Calm, patient, who give second chances. Take time each week to be with God and others without doing anything for God and others. Acknowledge your mistakes to those close to you, inviting them to comfort and help you through this. And show those around you that disappointing you won't destroy their relationship with you. That's a big one. That it's okay that people are going to make mistakes. And our relationship is going to be good. In fact, God often uses us to help reframe who he is for others. Think about that. God is using you to kind of reframe their perception of God. Find that incredible. Just like you developed your original perception of God based on your experiences with your family, you too can develop a better perspective of God based on your experiences with healthy Christ followers. In the Ruth story, what reduced her anxiety, what reduced her, 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 her kind of nervousness, her sensitive style, was meeting someone. Boaz. She met Boaz, who showed her that she was loved no matter what, that kept her close despite her background, her mistakes, and her insecurities. The church, you need to find someone who's going to love you that way for your personal relationships and understand that God loves you. Oh, boy, does he love you. Despite our sins, despite our setbacks, despite our shortcomings. Amen?